Hey, how's it going? This is another episode of Film Streak, and my name is Rob, and I am going to go through the last week of films I've been watching. I'm watching something new every day, and that means not necessarily a new release, but something that I've been meaning to watch, maybe a classic I've just put off for way too long, maybe just something that's kind of uh, obscure and maybe going under the radar, and uh, I'll get to maybe share a little bit of what I think about that. Sometimes good, sometimes not good. We'll just have to see how it goes. So thanks for checking this out. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you're looking for other episodes, you want to maybe subscribe, you can do that at filmstreak.com. There's links there to uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all those places. So go there and do that. But in the meantime, let's get down to our next group of movies here. Um, I'm going to start with number 37. That's picking up from where we left off. And that is a film called Trans-Siberian. Now, that was from 2008, and uh, it was directed by Brad Anderson, stars um, Woody Harrelson. Um, who else is in that? Ben Kingsley's in it. Woody Harrelson and Emily Mortimer, they're a couple that get on a train in Beijing, I think, and they basically take a trip across Russia or into Russia. And Ben Kingsley is a, uh, a like a detective. Uh, he's basically looking into a murder. He's doing an investigation, and... It's not quite clear at the beginning like how these characters are going to cross paths. But as the story goes on, as the train ride itself goes on, um, they start to intersect. And there's another couple that enter into the story. And they may be – there's something a little bit shady about them. And it's not qu not quite clear what it is. Um, it's It's revealed later that they're like drug mules or smugglers. And so they may have something to do with the murder that that is basically shown at the beginning of the film. And so there's a little bit of intrigue. There's some suspense about who's really doing what and, and what are what is everybody's intentions. And so in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't really have like bigger thematic elements. It really is more of like, um, you know, that murder mystery kind of thing of people stuck on a train and them trying to figure each other out and what each other's goals are and maybe what each other's secrets are. So that's really the thing that this whole film hinges on is, is just kind of watching that play out. And there's something to that when it's entertaining and when it's maybe surprising um, or just uh, shocking, those kinds of things can really, make a story like that have some impact. But what I got watching this was that it felt like it was more of a, it, it used that framework, but it was maybe a little bit more of like a, a character piece. Like you're really supposed to just identify with these people and their, maybe their history or the troubles that they've been through and how they're trying to maneuver through this. And all that goes to say though, it's not very intriguing. Like I, kind of already knew what was going to happen pretty early on. Like once you know who all the characters are, it, it becomes a little obvious, like how this is all going to go down. And so in that case, it's not really effective. In the case of developing a couple of the characters in particular, I think there's some interesting stuff there in terms of uh, giving them a background and giving them some context for why they're in this situation and maybe, you know, the, the links that they'll go to, um, to get out of the situation. But it's, uh, 
I don't know. I, I didn't find it all that intriguing, you know, I, because I felt like I was ahead of the story. And maybe that's because this is a kind of story that's been told in different ways, multiple times, you know, uh, I would say pass on this one. I wanted to see it for a long time. Uh, just kind of something about the concept intrigued me. And I think if you've seen this in other films, this basic premise, like, you know, strangers on a train kind of thing, uh, you've probably seen this in other places done in better ways. So that is uh, Trans-Siberian. We're just going to give that one a pass and we'll keep it moving. So that brings us to number 38, which uh, I'm going to say again, these are movies that are sometimes obscure, sometimes a little hard to find. And I just, for whatever reason, maybe I saw a trailer or read something about them. And I just said, oh, I got it. I want to see that. I want to see what that's about. And now I'm finally doing that. I'm finally catching up with some of them. So let's move on to number 38 here. This is Edge of Winter. And this is a little more recent. This is from 2016. And this uh, is directed by Rob Connolly and stars Joel Kinnaman, Tom Holland, um, which, <laughs> hey, this is I, before Spider-Man, I guess, or right around the same time. But it's uh, it's about a father who is... Um, basically broken up with his wife and doesn't see his kids much, just kind of lives on his own and is, is maybe struggling. His wife or his ex-wife brings the, the boys over. He's got two sons, brings them over to stay with him. And he, he is going to help, I guess, take care of them, watch them while she goes on vacation with her new husband or, or their stepdad or whatever. So he's, alone, used to living alone, used to really just kind of struggling through life at that point. And now he's got his two sons with him. And I feel like the story wants to lean into it a little bit about how hard life has been for him, maybe since breaking up his family or since things kind of fell apart in that way. And having his two sons with him again it brings like a, a maybe a, a better, a clearer vision about what he wants to do with his life and maybe get his shit together. But um, he's still he's still who he is. So he's still got his problems. He's still got his his uh, his shortcomings. And so. In a way, in, in, in an effort to relate to his kids and try to, you know, give them some some positive energy, he, he takes them out um they find a, a rifle in his in his home and he takes them out to go shooting just to do something, just to have something to engage with his sons with. And when they get out into the woods and, you know, they're out there, one son is really into it, is really like kind of fascinated and entertained by it. And the other is just not having it, which happens, right? But, uh, his approach is to just kind of power through it and just like kind of force the situation in, in a real like effort to, to try, which is admirable, but sometimes that doesn't work. Right. So this all starts to eventually kind of come around to being a bad thing where he's forcing it. He's like holding his son so tight to him that it's becoming uncomfortable. It's becoming actually, um, it's becoming a little bit threatening. Um, and 
when they end up getting lost, you know, they're driving, they're trying to get back home and they run off the road. It's in the dead of winter. So there's snow, it's cold. They have no shelter. You know, they end up finding that cabin that he remembers. They they go to this cabin and then two other men show up who claim to be, uh, I think, hunters or something like that. So, you know, he immediately sees it as a threat. Like, this is not, you, you're not supposed to be here. I'm trying to protect my sons. And it all starts to escalate. So it starts to become a little bit more of a uh, kind of a cat and mouse thriller thing where he's trying to protect his sons. These other two men are in the mix now. But they're not necessarily dangerous, or it's not clear if they're dangerous. But the the paranoia and the the almost uh, delusion that he's starting to form about, I just have to protect my children, he sees them as a threat. And he takes action. And it becomes a little bit where he, you know, he reaches a point where he becomes unhinged, and he's, he kills them. And you know, the sons are then left to kind of deal with that of uh, what happens when their father, who they may or may not trust or may or may not love, it, it just kind of becomes totally unhinged and, and goes on, goes into a full psychotic break. Um, it, it, it really gets, uh, it really gets kind of dark. And so <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if this was the kind of film I was expecting. Um, I guess I was, in a way, I was maybe expecting a little more traditional, like, uh, parent protecting his children story. But when it starts to become apparent that there may not be a threat, but he is becoming the threat by becoming overprotective or, or just desperate to hold on to his children and to not let them out of his life. Um, you know, as a thematic element, as a concept, I like that. I kind of get it. Um, but it's such a, it's such a delicate turn to do that with a character. This, I don't quite think it landed, you know, it, it has some elements that I, that I can appreciate, but overall it, it it just seemed like it started to go way out into left field. And I, I don't know. At some point, I just wasn't sure what movie I was watching now. Um, and again, you know, it, it's like some of these films that I, I'm talking about here and, and even just these two, it, everybody in it is good and everything about them is good. But something about the story, there's a there's a fundamental uh, there's a fundamental problem with the concept, with the premise. And. And yet, you know, that's what this a lot of this is, right? It's an exercise in storytelling. It just doesn't really work for me. So I'm going to say maybe pass it. If you don't have it available to you, if, not, if you don't just happen to run into it, and maybe just don't look for it. It's all good. All right, now, look, so that was 38. I'm going to move on to one that uh, is definitely, I think, considered a classic um, that... I wanted to see for a long time for a couple of different reasons, but I uh, just never did. And I figured now this episode, we're just going to do all winter films. Okay. Just the bad things that happen in, in the winter. So let's talk about this one. This is Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, this is directed by Sidney Pollock, the great Sidney Pollock I, I consider. And uh, it's from 1972. 
stars Robert Redford. He's basically the the main. He's not the only character, but he's the main character, and uh, it is kind of a one man show for a good part of it. And I could even say that there are plenty of movies that have come after this that follow in a similar vein. I'm even going to talk about one in a little bit, but. This, I guess, in terms of being a a first or one of the earlier iterations of this type of story, I can see where it has value and it really has like a cinematic, it, it serves as like a cinematic landmark, you know, for for this type of a story and being dedicated to film and in such a really magnificent way. It's a beautiful film. It's amazing to look at. It it really does feel like you're in a whole different era, like a whole different time. And so the story is basically about a man, Jeremiah Johnson. He's a veteran of, I believe, the Mexican-American War. It's some earlier war in America's history, um, not the Civil War, but he is uh, kind of, he's basically a man who honestly is kind of a mystery, like there's not really a lot that's said. He doesn't disclose a lot in the course of the film. Maybe in later in later parts of the film, he he will reveal some things. But a lot of the early stuff, early things that are happening, it's not quite clear who he is or why he is out on the frontier now, and why he's kind of chosen this life for himself. And and it's clear it is clear that this is not the life he's used to. Because there's a lot of him trying to just learn how to live, how to survive, you know, living off the land, just making fire, making shelter, um, you know, hunting and, and all of these things that are clearly not something he's used to. Because it shows the, the film shows him having to struggle with this. But some of the encounters he has with other people along the way, uh, you know, from hunters and you know, a family and, and even, uh, you know, different Native American tribes. Um, I feel like uh, those are chances, those are opportunities that I thought would have been used to explain a little more about who he is and why he is there. And yet it doesn't really happen that way. A lot of it is really played close to the vest. And that's the thing that's a little fascinating about this, actually, is that, you know, I always thought, I mean, I still think, that Robert Redford is like just one of films in all the history of film. He's like one of the most charismatic and like handsomest, like leading man types that can charm anybody, charm the camera, right? He can convey and he can emote in such a, a powerful magnetic way. But here in this film, he's so cold and, and uh, almost detached I mean, it's, I guess it's a very stoic kind of approach, but it's hard to get a read on the man, the character. And and I'm sure that's a choice, but it really makes it hard to either get behind him or at least kind of figure out what he's about. And so that was where a lot of the early part of the film, I, I was challenged by it. And maybe that's a good thing, but I was challenged by why am I supposed to care about this guy? Other than he's trying to survive. He's a man out in the wilderness trying to survive on his own. Okay. I, I appreciate that as a, as a conceit, but I, I wasn't sure like 
what is it about this man? And so as the film goes on, there is more revealed and things do develop, you know, things happen with him and, and characters that he knows that you start to get a sense of um, what's inside of him because of the way he reacts to some things. Um, some characters that he meets end up getting killed and he decides to take action on that. And But now this is like almost to the end of the film when this happens. I mean, almost literally right at the end. And so there's a lot that the film really holds close and doesn't give you until, you know, pretty much the majority of it has already been told. Um, and so, I don't know, I kind of struggled with it a little bit. And I can see why it's probably regarded as a classic and, and certainly this type of story. You know, it almost feels like, it almost feels like this movie was made for a different audience. And by different, I mean an audience that was maybe of a like a previous generation or a certain, I don't know, a certain demographic. And I I can't even pinpoint it. But all I can say is it reminded me. It's like when I was watching it, it reminded me of some of those early live action Disney movies from like the '60s and '70s, um, where they're very kind of family friendly and and. They're a little bit, um, I don't even know if quaint is the word. It's just kind of old fashioned and traditional. I mean, some, even down to like some of the music and the way some of the, the scenes are, are filmed or, or, or shown that uh, it just felt very, uh, what like Pollyanna ish, right? And maybe that's only because I have to compare it to what's come out since then in the last 50 years. But, you know, maybe at the time when this came out, it was like really rugged and kind of gritty. But watching it now through the through the perspective of everything that's come since then, it feels a little bit clean. It feels a little bit too, um, uh, I don't know, sanitized. And so I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of mixed about it. I don't know if I like it or not. I definitely like Robert Redford and I like him in this movie and I like some of the things that happen in it, but the fact that you almost wait to the end of the movie to really get to that, uh, I don't know. It's a little bit of a slog for the first, first half or first two thirds of the movie, which is also interesting because this movie isn't that long. I mean, it's, um, I want to say it's maybe two hours. I mean, it's, it doesn't have a super long runtime. And yet there's an intermission, like, I don't know, an hour and a half into the movie. And so you're almost at the end of the movie by the time you get to an intermission. And I've only seen intermissions in like super like three or four hour movies where, of course, they give give you a break because you need it. Get up, stretch the legs, all that. But here, the intermission just seemed more of like a hold holdover from an older type of movie. So I don't know. I, it's really kind of a mixed, uh, it's a mixed bag for me. I like some of it. I didn't really find some of it that interesting or entertaining. So I, you know, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, I would say if you're into that type of movie, like the, the rugged survivalist, um, you know, the, the person looking for some kind of, uh, I don't know, 
some kind of salvation or redemption or whatever, at least at least watch this to know a little bit of the background, like how this kind of story has been told throughout you know, the history of cinema, because this is at least a good a good start. So that is Jeremiah Johnson, 1972. And now we're going to move on to what I think was probably one of the better films I saw this week and is actually a much better version to my eyes of Jeremiah Johnson, or at least that type of story. And that is a film called Land. That's pretty recent. It just came out uh, maybe last year, I think. And that's um, directed by Robin Wright and stars Robin Wright. It's about a woman who's kind of on a similar journey as Jeremiah Johnson, just decides one day she's moving out to the country and going to leave everything behind and start all over again. And it's not really clear why at the beginning. It's just, she's, this is her conviction that she's going to make a new life for herself and she's not going to ask for help and she's not going to, you know, rely on things that she doesn't need. She's going to figure it out on her own. She moves out to a cabin and she tells them, take the truck, take everything. I'm not ever going back. And they warn her, you know, winters out here can be really hard and, and, you know, life isn't easy out here, but she's she's convinced this is what she's going to do and so uh you know there there's that period there's that that i guess montage or that part of the film where she is struggling to like you know find food and keep herself uh warm and uh kind of make her home in this in this cabin that she has and um through that you start to see there are periods there are, i guess vision she has of what I presume to be her husband and son. And it's, it's still not clear what happened to them, right? It's, it's one of those things where she either left them or they're not around or for whatever reason, her life has taken a whole different direction, but she still has images of these people in her mind. So when she almost freezes to death, there's a man named Miguel who shows up um, with another woman who's a nurse and they help her kind of get her back into good health, help her recover. And in that he teaches her how to hunt and take care of herself and take care of the, the land and all that, but also starts to share a little bit of like why he's out here. And you start to uncover there's, there's a little bit of like a mutual understanding that they have their reasons. These two people for being out here for living this life this way. And I I think it's interesting that it's not all put up front. And yet it's also, it's also played real. It's not played like these characters are hiding anything. They're just trying to live a new life. They're trying to continue with life. And ultimately you do find out why that is the case and that they are you know, they're not running from anything. They're not hiding from anything. They're just trying to find a new appreciation for the world around them, for the life that they have. And that, to them, means they're having to make it all up from, from scratch, from starting over. And so that's, uh, 
that's a pretty powerful element, I think, to have in these characters where there's no mystery in terms of uh, is there some sinister motivation for them. The mystery is only what happened to them and, and what is it that they need to heal within themselves, which I, I think a lot of us can probably relate to. Maybe we don't even know those things about ourselves, but they're there. And these characters take it to the extreme by entirely changing their lives. But in order to maybe find some clarity and find some, some peace. And, you know, there's a great, there's a great scene towards the end of the film where the man that she meets, his name is Miguel and it's played by Damien Bashir. And I think it's really quietly just a sub, just a subtle presence that is, is, a little bit fatherly, but also just uh, comforting. I, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but feels like the right tone for a character that would get through to her and maybe have some breakthroughs. And so they kind of develop a little bit of a friendship, um, a, a rapport with each other, but it's revealed at some point that he is dying and she, who had vowed to never go back to the city and never basically return to society, walks all the way back to town and finds him. And, you know, basically he, she asks him, like, why did you never tell me? Why didn't you tell me you were, you were sick or you were dying? And, you know, him, his, his point of view of, of meeting her and helping her was that and he, and he says it, the line is like, you offered me a way to die in a state of grace. Like to do something good for somebody as, as maybe his last act or his last, um, in the last part of his life. And I, I thought that was really powerful. I thought that was really touching. I mean, it's deep to think that you're not... You, the trouble you go through and the struggle you have, if anybody helps you, it's not just to help you. It's something maybe they need too. And maybe you'll never know that. Or maybe you'll know it after the fact. But you know that it's not like the motivation, but it's a part of it. And I, I don't know. I thought that was really insightful. I thought that was really... I just really thought that was deep, man. And it's made clear, not through saying it. I mean, it's in the dialogue, but you see it happen beforehand. And so, I don't know. I thought the, the overall message with this was a lot more clear, but also deeper than maybe Jeremiah Johnson or some other films like this, where you know, it's about like whatever your past is and, and whatever your troubles may have been, whatever struggles you've had, the challenges you've faced. I mean, you can always find, you can always work your way towards and find and, and be able to have, you know, a, a, a redemption or, or like a sense of peace or at least harmony with the world around you. You won't be able to change what's happened. But you can find a, like a level of acceptance and understanding with it. 
And I, I think that's just a universal thing. That's always good to have reaffirmed, but especially when you're struggling the most, you know, it's revealed and uh, maybe I won't say, but it's revealed that both of these characters had some really bad things happen to them. And that's why they've, that's why this kind of story takes place. But overall, the the thematic element of that, of like, there there's always a better place you can arrive at. But you have to be able to want to arrive there. You have to maybe work at it. And maybe you have to be a little bit, uh, uh, you have to sacrifice a little bit. Or you have to do for others a little bit. But it, you can get there. And I just thought that was really... That's what I took away from it. Maybe there's a whole other level of stuff with this film, but I thought it was really for such a quiet kind of small film. You know, there's not a lot of characters in it. There's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot to it really. It's really pretty simple, but the message of it, I thought was really, really powerful. So I would recommend this one. Actually, I would really recommend this. It's, it's actually very, it's very well done. Uh, it's Robin Wright's directorial debut, so that's also impressive. I mean, it's it's a really great looking film. It's well put together. The the acting in it is all very uh, effective. I think. I mean, I I was really pleased with this, and so that's Land, and that's recent. That's from twenty twenty one. So be sure to check that one out. All right. So now I'm going to move on to a little bit uh, darker territory here. This is one that, um, this is number 41. This is Pontypool. And this is from 2008, directed by Bruce McDonald. It's funny that this film, I actually saw something about this in, what was that um, series on AMC? I think it's History of Horror, where they go through like different horror movies and they talk about some good examples of genres or types of stories and this was one that came up and I think it was about like the kind of virus outbreak genre. And this was one of them. And the thing that fascinated me about it, though, is that it all takes place in a radio station. And so it's a little bit. Um, it's just very kind of insular, like you don't see much outside of this one set of this radio station and the sound booth, the control room and. And, you know, some of the areas in, in the building, you really don't see anything outside of that for the whole film. So it, in a way, it almost it almost feels like an old fashioned like radio play. And I think that might have even been like some of the inspiration for it, because um, even at the very beginning, like it starts with just kind of a narration and it's in kind of the radio announcer voice. Um, and so. It just feels like it feels like a good old fashioned radio play. I'll just tell you the the main character here is a radio kind of DJ, uh, small town radio DJ. He's driving into work. He kind of notices a couple of weird things, like a lady that runs up to the car and then just vanishes, just runs off. And uh, he gets in. He's kind of like, okay, here we go, another day on the grind. He wants to have a more lively broadcast, uh, you know, a, a style and a, and a voice. But, you know, he's just kind of doing the status quo. Like, let's just get through the little garbage news stories. Let's get to the weather. Let's get to whatever. And um, so he he's kind of getting beat back by his uh, producer, uh, you know, the um, who is um, 
trying to just keep him in check. Like, hey, just just say what's in the script, basically. And so he's fighting that a little bit here and there. Just like he wants to be more. He wants to do more. And it turns out this is the day where he gets to do that, where he totally goes off the rails. Everything goes off the rails. But there are reports coming in that people are protesting at a doctor's office and then there's like some attacks that are happening. And uh, it just seems like things are starting to fall apart somehow outside in, in, the, in the world. It's all left up to our characters in the radio station to try to piece this together, like without any visual confirmation, without any real clear like out outside um, accounts of it. A lot of it is coming through like mixed uh, accounts of what's happening. And, and it's, it's just very confusing. The, like the walls start to close in. You're not sure what to believe. And you're not sure if any of this is even maybe even real. Like at one point it's even brought up, like maybe this is some kind of like hoax or a gag or something. But what they do here is the problem, right? The threat it's something that I'd never really seen or, or heard of before. And I thought it was kind of interesting where the problem that people are facing, the, the threat that's happening out in the world, it's not like some weird virus. It's not aliens. It's not, you know, vampires. It's nothing like that. Nothing supernatural or whatever. What it is, is almost the nature of language, the power of words and, and what, and meanings of words, which the film tries to explain. And it kind of makes sense. It, it lays out the logic for you. So at least you understand like, okay, there's like, there's a point where they say, okay, well, we just can't talk. So if we need to communicate, like they start writing notes to each other. Because they're not sure what words will trigger someone into this uh, almost like a hypnotic kind of manic state or, 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 um, or spread it in a way. So they just resort to writing words and not saying anything out loud. And so you think, OK, well, now oh, I'm in now because this is a whole new way to, to tackle this problem. Like, what is the world if we can't talk? Right. Well, so the fact that it relies on language as being the threat and how do you overcome that? Or can you even overcome it? So they try to break down like what the problem is and they, they realize that certain words have certain meanings and you can disinfect the word in a sense by changing the meaning of the word. If that, if that even makes sense, what I'm saying and this is what I gather. I, it's it's a it's a really tricky uh, premise to to make work. And it's the only problem with this film I have is I don't really know that they made it work because I feel like I understood what they were going for, but it doesn't. I feel like it's a little ambiguous exactly how they got around this in 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 the logic of the film. And so I do like the conceit though that it is about words and language and the power of what those things mean and how if you change the meanings you can basically change how people are affected by the words uh, or that that's my understanding but it 
once that is, once a character is figuring out that's what it is, and maybe they figure out what to do about it, the film kind of ends. It's done. Like the story almost just, okay, we wrapped up. We're good. We, we explained it, right? Well, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a, there's a, a point in the film where I, I guess the military or law enforcement are moving in and it almost goes to like, um, you know, the ending of Cloverfield where it's like, okay, well, everything's about to get destroyed. So I guess we did what we could. Uh, I felt like that was a little bit of a, of an easy way out. It felt a little cheap. I just wish it would have had a little more of a resolution. Like really show me more examples of how this process worked of fixing this. What I understood, it, it takes that, that idea that if you say a word so many times, such rapid succession, it stops becoming, it, it loses its meaning. Like it just becomes gibberish. If you say a word so many times over and over, right? I think we've all done that in some way, maybe even by accident. But that is illustrated in the film. And I thought that would be a really cool way to illustrate how this works, like how this is a kind of a cleaning method for words. But it's only shown once and it doesn't really, you don't really see it expand out into other characters or or in any other way. So you're not sure how, like, did they really figure this out or did this just work for them? So I think... You know, maybe it's even a thing where there should have been like just another, another character to show how this really all worked. But again, I, it's such a small film and I commend them on having a really unique take on this genre and the type of uh, way to tell the story. I just wish it would have been a little clearer at the end what, what would have happened to these characters in this whole situation. But anyway, that's Pontypool. That's from 2009. And I will say that that was, um, or 2008, I think, but that was uh, something that was mentioned on History of Horror. So I, clearly it, it's something that people have seen and, and are able to remark about. And I'm one of them. I do like the premise and I like the approach. And if you have a chance to see it somehow, somewhere, maybe give it a shot. See what you think. Maybe it makes sense. Or maybe it makes no sense. And I just read way too much into it. All right, so let's move on. We're going to get to our last two here. And these are basically films that um, will reinforce every other film I've talked about this week in the sense that nothing good happens in winter. Just doesn't. Because this is number 41. This is Climax from director Gaspar Noy. And I will tell you, if you've ever watched any of his other films, I've, I can think of two right off the top of my head that are pretty traumatic, scarring experiences. And I don't take that lightly. I mean, the films that he has made are films that are stuck in my mind and I will never be able to unsee for good and bad reasons. But this is now another one. 
<laughs> this movie, it's it's not quite clear what you're getting into when you first watch it. It opens with just a shot on an old TV with a bunch of like, I don't know, like classic like movies stacked around it on the TV. You're watching videos like like old VHS interviews, tapes uh, with dancers that are, I guess, interviewing or auditioning or something for um, to be able to be a part of like, a, I guess, a dance company or a dance troupe. You're getting a little bit of like who they are and what they like and what they're into and, and maybe some of their past and stuff. You know, they talk about some pretty basic things and it doesn't really seem like the film's going anywhere. Like you're getting introduced to some of these characters, but you're not necessarily seeing them by how they associate with each other. And it's not quite clear who everybody is at that point, but there's, I don't know, maybe 10 or so different characters that you see kind of rotating through these taped interviews. And at some point then it cuts and we go straight into like super high energy dance sequence in the actual dance studio, right? In this big open space. And I mean, it's, it's basically like a, just a, a constantly revolving like cipher, right? It's just like someone jumps in the middle and starts doing all their moves. Some of it's coordinated. Some of it's like everybody together. Um, the thing that's impressive about it is that it's done in one long uncut take. And the camera is not just like, locked down it's moving all in and around above this dance sequence which is really impressive from like just a technical standpoint but the fact that there's also you know you're starting to see like who's who like even just like the style of dance and the energy of it you get a little bit of a sense of of what these people are bringing to this without really knowing who they are or what they're here for so I thought it was a really interesting way to set the tone because the music's high energy, the movement, the camera work, it's all so dynamic and just full of, of energy. And so that puts you like up here, right? You might've started just kind of watching someone on tape here. And now you're up here now with the, with the, just the movement of it all. And, you realize that these people are basically stuck in the studio because it's cold outside. It's winter evening. And so they're all stuck in this place. And as they're doing that, as they're there, you know, they dance for a while. That's kind of the opening sequence. And then they, I guess, take a break and they're sitting around, they're standing around talking, um, socializing, whatever. They're having some drinks and stuff. But you realize like these people are not all, um, they're not all on the up and up. Some of them have some real troubled past, uh, just some troubled lifestyles. And, you know, they, they, they get to talking a little reckless. They get to talking a little bit heated about things and not everybody gets along with each other and not everybody sees things the same way. So there's a point where it starts to feel like, okay, the dancing has kind of subsided and it's taken a slower turn maybe it's even like exhaustion setting in where, um, you know, it's, it, it feels like things have kind of come down now. Like we hit our big high. We had a good ride for like a, several minutes there. 
And now, okay, the evening's kind of winding down, right? Um, it, there's even a little bit of like tension, a little bit of like something is not, like the ground is a little shaky under everybody, but it's not clear why. And then credits. And it's like er, credits, like it's like all the actors, cast, the crew, uh, written and directed by, you know, the music, all the songs that were played. And I, I just had to wonder, like, wait, what am I, what happened here? Because I can see the runtime. We still got a ways to go. And the way I took that is, oh, that's right. I remember who made this movie. This is telling me you can walk away now and enjoy the rest of your evening. Or if you want to stick around, you enter at your own risk. And that is exactly what happens. Because after those credits are done, we cut back to what's going on in the studio where everybody's starting to really have some problems. Everybody's feeling strange. Selva, who is played by Sofia Butella, who's probably maybe the most recognizable face to maybe international audiences or American audiences. She's been in several films, but um, she's sort of the main character who starts to figure out like something is really wrong here. Like people are all acting strangely and they all start to deduce that something happened to somebody spiked the punch bowl basically. And they don't know who, but they know that it's really given them all some problems. And they're thinking it's probably LSD or something serious that's causing like hallucinations and just a lot of, a lot of bad energy. And so uh, <laughs> they try to figure this out in whatever state of coherence they're in. They try to figure out who did it and why. And basically all of their energy that was going into the dance and all of that, it's, it's kind of starting to become unhinged. It's, it's all of the fear, the confusion, the, the rage, the, the uncertainty. It's all like it's going unchecked now. Like everybody's lost any grip on themselves or reality even. And uh, yeah, it turns into a complete fucking nightmare. It's really, there are some parts of this film that are very like horrific. And I mean, there's not an easy way to say it. It's one of those things that when you watch it unfold, if you understand that experience, of let's say the bad trip, but multiply that times a dozen people who don't all get along with each other, who aren't going to be there to, you know, ride it out with each other. Um, that is what happens here. And a lot of bad things go down. And so the scene that seems so energized and coordinated and precise it all, I mean, even down to the camera, right? The camera work in this, which was so choreographed and intricate. As the film goes, it becomes really loose and wild. And the camera just just floats free-formed almost. It, it goes from like a really locked in, like precise, like all the steady cam moves and the tracking shots. 
the camera starts to go upside down. It starts to go handheld. It's uh, the colors, the lighting in the rooms and the setting all start to just behave just erratically. And it, it, I mean, it all illustrates or at least conveys the, the feeling that these characters are going through for sure. But the other thing is that it puts you there. Like you can't help now, but be immersed in this because it's all done again in these long unbroken takes where there's no, there's no trickery here. Like these people are basically going through this, even if they're acting, they're still doing it. Sophia Butella is still throwing herself on the floor, like repeatedly or like running into walls and screaming her lungs out. It's all really happening. And so it is, it's exhausting. It's challenging. And it's like undeniable. I mean, unless you just hit pause, <laughs> it that is the experience. And I tell you, I mean, by the end of it, it, it's not clear what to feel at this point. You're not clear on who's right, who's wrong. What does it even matter at this point? But you know, you've definitely been through something. It's not really a film in the narrative sense. Like it doesn't have like a very clear, distinct plot and structure to it, but it does definitely work as a cinematic experience, just as a, as a visceral experience. And if you want to go for that kind of ride, this, this is going to be a big one. So, you know, I would say if you're down for that, if you're willing to stick with it, tough it out, it's definitely got some disturbing, unsettling stuff in it. But it might be worth the watch, at least for the impact, to know where your own, I guess, lines are drawn or or where you or maybe what you feel about living through that kind of experience. Whether you've been through it yourself or or not, this might be the closest to like the ultimate bad trip you would ever want to be, right? So maybe that's one to give a shot. Just, you know, hey. Just do so at your own risk, okay? All right. All right, let's get to this last one here because this is one that uh, is another classic. It's another one they call a classic. That this is actually coming up on 40 years, I believe, because this is The Thing from 1982, directed by John Carpenter. And I'll tell you, this is one that I wanted to see for a long time. And I, I even feel like I must have seen this at some point, maybe way back when. Maybe when it was, you know, first a home video was first uh, becoming a thing in the late 80s or mid 80s or whatever. But watching it now, I, I'm, I'm almost convinced I didn't see it because I didn't remember anything about this. And yet this was probably right in the time when I was watching, starting to watch movies like this, like horror movies and science fiction, that kind of thing. And John Carpenter, of course, I've, I know many of his films. But this one was one that I somehow just really never landed on my desk here, never, never made it in, in front of me. So I finally sat down to watch it. And, you know, there's not really a lot I can say about it because I feel like the thing is a pretty known movie, even if it's more of a cult following or um, a horror movie enthusiast following or whatever. But it's uh, I've always heard and now I finally got to see that it does work on the level of building that sense of tension and paranoia about the unknown and the, the mistrust and the, you know, the doubt about everyone around you 
and who they really are or who they say they are and who they really are. And so it's a little bit of, um, it's a little bit of like a cross between like alien and like was, uh, the body snatchers, invasion of the body snatchers, where there's clearly some other kind of power, some other entity at work here. And yet they're taking the form of people that you know and recognize and might not be obvious to you. So it, there's a lot of like, uh, there's a big sense of like mistrust and doubt on who you can, who you can rely on. And so I thought that was interesting. It was a, definitely a way to play this that didn't rely on a bigger store. You know, it's all set in this remote, like outpost, like a, it's like a research facility or something like in Antarctica. And so you're cut off from the rest of the world. There's no radio contact. There's no other, there's no help coming. And so these guys, I think it's like what, eight of them or something. They're all in this facility and they all basically have to rely on each other. And when they can't do that, then it's a problem. When you see the way they use what was obviously just a very limited budget. I mean, this is not a big budget film. And they use it. They put so much of it on screen uh, to create like either the monsters or even just the location itself. It really looks like you're in Antarctica. I mean, the 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 production level is is really... It's sufficient enough. It's convincing. And the the makeup effects and the special effects is so well done. And they're all real. They're all there. You know, the practical things that you you can't help but, you know, accept as real. Now maybe the like the movement of it and some of the, you know, whatever the 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 dynamic quality of it is kind of limited, but still, I mean it it it's hard to compare. I mean, look, because even when you think about they made a prequel to this movie. And I think 2011, something like that, which I had seen somehow. I had seen that one, but I hadn't seen this one. But when you look at the effects and the, the creativity that was used in this film versus that, which was much later, almost 30 years later, it's hard to see that those practical effects don't work better just because they're, there's a sense of them being real. And so I really think that this was a great example of putting all the money on the screen and making it effective, using it effectively. And so I, I think there's a reason why it's a classic. And, you know, I didn't really understand, but just reading a little bit about the film that it wasn't a success. It wasn't a blockbuster. It, it was actually probably even panned by a lot of critics at the time for being maybe too uh, gory or, or violent or maybe not even being very deep. Which, I mean, it's really not. It's it's very similar, I think, in, in the plot to Alien, like I said. But it, it it is different in the sense that it builds on different aspects of that kind of terror. It's not just uh, the terror of the unknown. It's also the terror of maybe the person next to you. And can you trust them? And can you believe them? So I think that was a really kind of different angle that that works for this kind of a story. So I don't know. I I liked it. I I wasn't sure if I was going to like it. You know, a lot of movies from that era, I'm not always sure if they're going to hold up or if they're really going to hit the way they might have done in the past. But now, compared to stuff now, it doesn't work the same. But this one, I think, really does. I mean, it still looks great. And, it, you know, it it's effective in the type of stories trying to tell and the characters that are in it. So I, this is definitely a thumbs up for me for sure.
And so, look, that's another one that's just another reminder that nothing good ever happens in the winter. I'm just telling you. All right. So, look, that has been another week of film streak. I've done another seven films. And um, look, if you want to catch more, you maybe maybe I've seen something that you haven't seen before. Maybe you have seen it. Maybe you feel differently about it. You know, I'm watching these once and I'm just giving my fresh take on it. So maybe I'm wrong about it. Maybe I missed something, but check out some other episodes and see what you think. You can go to filmstreak.com. You can subscribe there. You can listen to other episodes. Maybe there's some films you want to uh, want to let me know. You've seen them and you think I'm all wrong about them. That's okay. That's fine. I'm just seeing what I say. I'm saying what I see. Whatever. All right. Look, so until next time, just keep, keep watching movies, man. Just keep doing that that's what i'm here for so you do it too uh okay